welcome to today's podcast. I will be reading The Last Days by His Son by Neville Goddard uh, from his 1964 lecture series. And if you are new to my podcast, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I don't always do an introduction, but my name is Lena. I am a writer. I am an author. I am a speaker. I have a blog. I have a YouTube channel. And I primarily discuss Neville Goddard, mystical dreams uh, and visions and experiences. I also talk about the symbolism that is hidden within scripture. And I talk about mindset and manifesting. However, on this podcast alone, I simply read Neville Goddard's lectures. If you're interested in mindset or manifesting content, you can check out my YouTube videos, uh, my blog, or my other podcast. And the links to those are available on my blog. So let's get into this lecture. Again, thank you so much for joining me. All right. So Neville tells his audience, the last days by a son. This is taken from the epistle to the Hebrews. It's an unknown author. Many scholars believe that Paul wrote it. But if you read it carefully, along with the letters of Paul, you will come to the conclusion that it is not Paul. Whoever wrote it, the unknown author, certainly had one of the most profound understandings of this great mystery. And I say mystery advisedly, for most of us think it is history, human history, and it's not. In this, you will see he is not speaking of Jesus Christ, that the world thinks of when they use the words Jesus Christ. Yet he uses the word Jesus. Paul mentions him first in the second chapter, the ninth verse. But before that, he establishes a cosmic Christ. He is speaking only of a cosmic Christ that is God himself. Now listen to the words. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he spoke of us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature. Hebrews 1.1 Here he establishes his presence. He reflects the very glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature. If I say to you, Jesus Christ... Were you a Christian, you would think in terms of a being who lived and died approximately 2,000 years ago. If I say to you, Joshua, you would think of an ancient patriarch, an ancient prophet, the author of the sixth book of the Bible. But you wouldn't associate Joshua with Jesus, would you? You'd think they were two entirely different beings, Joshua and Jesus. And yet both words spell the same thing. Joshua is the Hebraic form of Jesus, and Jesus is Jehovah. You spell Jesus, yod Hey vah Hey shin ayin That's how you spell Joshua. You spell Jehovah, yod Hey vah Hey. So why do they differ in spelling as to the two last syllables, or the last two syllables? The last two letters. Because listen to it carefully. God and creative activity is called the Son. Infinite love and unthinkable origins in God the Father. Infinite love and creative activity is God the Son. Infinite love and eternal procession is God the Holy Spirit. All God, 
one God, not three gods. But God in creative activity is God the Son. The word translated reflect. He reflects the glory of God. That word can either mean reflect or radiate. A radiation is a creative activity. It is this God, this infinite love that actually became us, every one of us. It is this God and man. Now listen to it carefully, for when I use the words Jesus Christ, I do not think of a unit, one little man born in an unnatural physical way 2,000 years ago. I do not. The being of whom I speak is not born in any physical, unnatural way. He is born of flesh and blood. He comes into this world, clothed, as you are clothed, in the most normal, natural conception. As I was conceived and you were conceived, in the same manner, in a family, a large family, and while walking this earth and he knows his real name, while well, Jesus Christ now is a given name to God in creative activity. Buried in man, all men, the cosmic Christ, it's Jehovah himself that is buried in us when we say, I am, that's Jehovah, and the word Jehovah is Jesus. Same thing. So here, when I speak of Jesus Christ, listen to the statement carefully. I take it from the last letter, the last chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. The 13th chapter of 2 Corinthians, it's the fifth verse. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Well, if you ask that of the average person in the world, and if they say yes, they don't really mean it, not really. For when they think of Jesus Christ, they do not for one moment feel his presence. Feel him in them as their own wonderful human imagination. They don't. If they begin to rationalize it, they may say to you, well, yes, I will accept that. But let them be honest with themselves, and when they think of Jesus Christ, they see him as some historical character back in time 2,000 years ago. So the words are not contemporary with them at all. So when you read the words, do you not know, do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? These are the words. Well, if you realize it, it's that one I'm speaking of this night. That is the one and the only concern of God the Father. God the Father is going to resurrect in you his Son. When he rises in you, you are he. He resurrects only Jesus Christ, that is God himself. So the grace of God is linked with a specific event, and that event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now there are many who believe that because of a certain experience they have experienced his birth, or experienced his birth, of which I speak. Now, there are definite patterns that we follow in this birth. It's given to us so vividly in the first letter of Peter, the first chapter, the third verse. Listen to it carefully. By his great mercy, we are born anew through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if Jesus Christ was once and for all resurrected 2,000 years ago, you have already been, or you have already then been born anew. And you have not been born anew. Therefore, it is simply the unfolding of the cosmic Christ in all, individualized as you. And when he is resurrected in you, it begins a new age. A completely different age begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the individual. It does not begin with the birth. The birth is the other side of the coin. It begins with the resurrection. No one has the birth prior to resurrection. 
the resurrection begins Christianity. It begins on that note, but within a matter of moments after the resurrection comes, the wonderful heavenly birth from above. So, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. In what way? Well, he spoke in that 19th Psalm, the very first verse, the heavens are speaking of the glory of God. And the earth shows forth his handiwork. Today, our astrophysicists, through their telescopes and their trained mathematical minds, look off into this fabulous world of ours, and they become excited. And the stories they tell us of this enormous display of the glory of God, then our geophysicists, they look down to the one substance differently arranged in many patterns. A rearrangement of its pattern of one substance, and instead of having gold, we have silver. A rearrangement of its pattern of one substance, and instead of having gold, we have silver. Another rearrangement, we have coal. Another rearrangement, we have something else like gas. But one unit, one substance, in a complex pattern produces this variety of things in our world. And our great scientists look at it. But he said that was secondary to his revelation by the sun. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. And you can find it in the first chapter, the 20th verse of Romans. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely, his eternal power and deity, has been clearly seen in the things that have been made. Looking for his power? See it through the microscope microscope of the great uh, geophysicist, of the great chemist today. And you see, this power was always there. He tells us, ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power, and his deity were clearly seen in the things that have been made. Well, you can't say that he turned from that. As Paul tells us in his very first chapter to the Romans, first chapter, the 20th verse, when you read it, you transcend that view. And tells us now we transcend it when we now, when now the sun speaks to us. The sun is not the cosmic Christ. The sun, and he gives now the quote in the fifth verse of the first chapter of Hebrews. For he bases his argument only on scripture. Everything is based upon scripture. And so he either quotes or refers to scripture in every chapter of the entire 13 chapters of Hebrews. He begins with two quotes. For to what angel did God ever say, Thou art my son? To what angel did he ever say that? He's trying to tell you how infinitely great man is beyond all the forces of nature, including angels and archangels and all the beings in the world. For it was not to them that he came. They are his servants, we're told. The angels serve man. Because God came, or because God came to man, and fused with man, this infinite pulsing being that is God in action, which is God the Son, but still God the Father, only when he is in action, he's God the Son. For we are told, through him also the world was created. So when God goes into creative action, that is called in Scripture the Son, the Cosmic Son. It is that that he's going to awake within you. And when he awakes him in you, you are not another that he's going to wake within you. There is no change in the sense of I, 
Only now you include within your being this cosmic being, but you are told he has given him the entire inheritance. To him all things are given, but your heavenly inheritance cannot become actual, or it's not fully realized by you, while you're still wearing this garment of flesh. When you take off this after you're resurrected, and may I tell you, in the book of Luke it shows you so clearly it takes nine months to complete the entire mission. From the resur- <coughs> excuse me, from the resurrection to the end, which is the ascension into heaven. Resurrection, earth, discovery of the fatherhood of God, which is yourself, and then the ascension into heaven, and it's only nine months. So the entire, I would say, missionary work required of the central character of Scripture is given nine months in Luke, if you read it carefully. It's not any long years. All he's concerned with is that one, that little section of nine months, from his mightiest act, which is to resurrect you, resurrect his son, which is himself in creative activity. But when he, he resurrects his son in you, why then you are fused with the son and you are that being and you rise in yourself. So resurrection is an event happening within, not on some outside place within the life of the individual, within this earthly life of the individual. This all takes place right here. So here, when I speak of the last days, these are the, they are these days. Not when the whole vast world will be consumed, no, when your world, this age, has, has ceased to be, and you enter into a new age. An entirely different world, this age, has ceased to be, and again you enter into a new age. Well, how am I clothed to that world? Listen to the words carefully from the third chapter of Philippians. Speaking now of this cosmic Son, Jesus Christ, He will change our lowly body. And the word change literally means refashion. He will change our lowly body to be like his. The phrase to be like his literally means of one form with. That's what it means. To be like his literally means of one form with this glorious body. So your future body is actually that of the radiant exalted Christ, not another body, one body, one being for God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are one. And God the Son, which is a seeming certain aspect, which is only his creative aspect because you, raises you to be one with him. So really, in the end, you're not less than. You are one with the Godhead. Seems mad, doesn't it? But I am not speculating. I'm not asking any being outside of my own experience to throw light on it. I'm telling you exactly what happened. Now, our scientists tell us that only that which is specifically proved can be relied on. Our scientists, not all of them, there are a few, like Alexis, I don't know the last name, the last name is missing from the lecture, but uh, who still remains a devout religious person, even though he did so much in the scientific world. And there are others who still remain willing to accept what they cannot prove to attest to. But the majority of them, many scientists and philosophers will not admit as explanation anything that comes from beyond or above this world of nature. If you can't prove it to them scientifically, then they will not accept it. And yet, I tell you, there is not a test given in science today that must meet that acid test that this must meet if you will accept what the mystic must accept. 
The Old Testament, as his frame of reference, you can have all the visions and all the dreams in the world. If you can't find the parallel in that book, it's only a personal communication between the depth of your soul, which is God, and you. It's meant for you. It's not part of the great unfolding drama of God. You go back and you read the ancient script for in, for information and foreshadowing of that which you have experienced. If you can't find it there, then look upon it as a private communication between you and God and try your best to ask for light to interpret it, should it come in the form of symbols. It may come in a direct simple manner and it needs no greater interpretation than your simple intelligence. If it comes in symbols, ask for light as to the meaning of these symbols. But if you don't find it in scripture, then it is not part of the unfolding play. The unfolding play must meet the most acid test. And I tell you from experience, it begins with the resurrection. It's the exact opposite of the way man on earth thinks. Here, everything begins with birth. A man cannot be resurrected until he first dies. And here begins with the resurrection. So what is this death that we speak of? And in the next four or five weeks, we're really observing. That has taken place. Read it carefully in the sixth chapter of Romans. If we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. Verse 5. So here we have the crucifixion is over. Everyone has been crucified with the cosmic, Christ, or you could not breathe. No one could cross the threshold that admits for conscious life unneeded by the crucifixion of God. Couldn't do it, but that's behind us. But the real mystery begins with the resurrection. You walk the earth and do not think for one second that you are entombed. Who could think himself entombed? He goes to the cemetery and he sees sepulchres, he sees tombs. He knows he isn't there. He will say yesterday they put some friends of his in one of them. But he isn't there, and he doesn't know the great mystery. He is walking in his dream. He isn't moving in his dream. He is so sound asleep he doesn't know that he was placed in a tomb. Uh, okay, sorry, lost my place again. And every child born of woman was placed in a tomb by that clothing of flesh and blood and completely encased in his skull. God's mightiest act, when he least expects it, will descend upon him, that merciful act, and arouse him. It will awaken him, and he will awake to find himself completely entombed and sealed in a sepulcher, and that tomb is his skull. After the initial panic, he will come out in the same manner that a child is born. But he doesn't feel himself any little baby. He is the same man, the same woman, that he is now and was just one second before he was awakened. And when he is awakened, he thinks it's a normal awakening. That's what he thinks. Only the intense vibration of something he's never experienced before. It hits him in his head and he thinks, this must be it. Not awakening, this must be death. It's the opposite of death. This is now really awakening until life when he awakens in the sepulchre. You only put dead people in tombs. Therefore, he must have been dead to be so sealed in a tomb. And the tomb in his skull, or the tomb is his skull. It is only then that he realizes that he was all through these unnumbered ages dreaming in his tomb. 
and then he comes out, and then the symbolism of the first chapter of Luke begins. Then the whole thing begins to unfold, and he is the only person spoken of in Scripture. He goes back into the ancient Scripture now to find not only that which the new one tells, for the New Testament interprets the old, not the other way around. The old is the sealed book until the first breaks the seal. What is the name of the first one? We call it Jesus Christ outside of it, because everyone who breaks the seal is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> there's only one Jesus Christ, there's only one God, and Jesus Christ is God. Now, what is this book trying to tell us? He speaks to me now not only through the cosmic Christ, he's going to speak to me through a son. And he names the son and where to find him in scripture. To what angel did he say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee? And again, to what angel did he say, Thou art my son, and I am thy father? And then we go back into the second book of Samuel, the seventh chapter, the fourteenth verse. And there we find him. Did I have the experience? Well, then listen to it. And you begin to feel, well now, that all has taken place in me. I have just had that. You mean something written 3,000 years ago foretold that foreshadowed the experience of last night? And you go back and you read it over and over and you can hardly believe this whole thing is all about you. And that's all that is about. The whole Bible is about God, only God. And God became us because he loves us, because God's nature is love. He's infinite power, infinite wisdom, infinite all these, but they are only attributes of God. God's true nature is love infinite love. That's his true nature. And God's real name, now he's about to reveal to you through his son. Now who is spoken of in the second Psalm, the seventh verse? For that's what he's quoting. He uses only scripture to support his argument, and that's what he quotes, the seventh verse, the second Psalm. Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Well, these words are addressed to one called David. David, now the next one. Now when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your son after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Second Samuel seven twelve and 14. To whom is that spoken? Read it carefully. That's spoken by the prophet Nathan to David. Go unto my servant David and say, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I, the Lord, will raise up your son after you, who shall come forth from your body. I will be his father, he shall be my son. You read it, but you haven't had the experience, and then one day this fantastic thing happens within you, and you begin almost to explode, and you do, something explodes, and here standing before you is David. There is no uncertainty as to who he is. I don't care what sculpture of David is now in the Vatican. I don't care what painter paints the David. Until you see him, you can't paint him. And I defy anyone to capture the beauty of that David on canvas, that David in marble. Can't do it. He's radiantly beautiful. He stands before you, and he is the David of biblical fame. He looks you right in the eye. He's just as described in the book of Samuel, the 17th chapter, or the 15th of Samuel, just like that, 1 Samuel sixteen twelve, And you have no uncertainty as to this relationship. And what does he call you? He calls you father. And you know you are his father. And you, you know 
You are his father, and you also know he is your son. You are looking right into the eye of the spiritual being. Well, what is he? You didn't even know he was buried in you. You had no idea. That was the thing that God, in the beginning, hid in man, as told us in Ecclesiastes. And God has put eternity into the mind of man, yet so that man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning until the end. Verse three eleven. The last days and the last days when he is departing from this age, and entering through the series of mystical experiences into that age, clothed in the exalted body of Christ Jesus, the cosmic Christ, because he took my age, clothed in the exalted body of Christ Jesus, the cosmic Christ, because he took my lowly body and changed it to be like his glorious body. And so we are departing. So the last days it will be revealed. What God hid in the mind of man, and what did He hide? David. The very word tells you, O Lamb. He hid O Lamb in the mind of man, and O Lamb means the eternal youth. It means the lad, the stripling, the eternal youth. So eternity now is revealed not as an old man, but this radiant lad, and he is God's spiritualized son to reveal fatherhood, because without the son there is no father. A son, there must be a father, and the son comes to reveal you as God the Father. So it's God's purpose to give you every child born of woman, Himself, and no one will thwart God in His purpose. His purpose is to give you Himself, as though there were no others in the world, just God and you. Finally, the gift is so complete when the son comes before you, just you, because He so gave Himself to you. You are He. So when God rises in man, man is just like him. So you are told in the Epistle of John, the third chapter of First John. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when He appears we shall be like Him. Verse three two. Don't go looking for any being in the world as your leader. You are Christ Jesus. He's buried in you, because we are like Him, and His sleep is so profound, which is now your sleep, but you don't know it. That is as though we were dead, and the day is coming, and it may be this night because who knows. But I'll give you a clue as to how you will know when it's coming, and the Bible gives it. It tells of a peculiar famine that comes upon man when he is about to return to the father. It's called the return of the prodigal son. What caused the prodigal son to come to himself and resolve to go to his father? A famine. He was eating the husks. Of corn, no, the. I need to go back. So, he was eating the husk instead of giving it to the pigs. He ate the husk, and the world thinks it means husk of corn. No, the whole vast world is husk compared to the reality that is God. No matter how ambitious you are and how you realize all your ambitions, they all turn to dust. The rich man dies like the poor man, the wise man like the fool. The strong like the weak, and all is vanity, and vanity of vanities. So this is husk. No matter how ambitious you are, you can realize it by God's law. But after you realize all of the dreams in this world, they turn to ash. So they're called husk in the Bible. And when man grows tired of feeding on things that always pass away, that they wear out like a garment, and they dissolve like smoke, then he changes the nature of his hunger. But God changes it for him, 
And the words are these in the eighth chapter, the eleventh verse of Amos: The Lord will send a famine upon the land; it will not be a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but for the hearing of the word of God, a hunger so intense that nothing but that can satisfy it. It is not for money; it is not for greatness; not to be the president; not to be a dictator; not to be anything in this world that is known to man, but a hunger for the word of God. Not a thing in this world can satisfy that hunger, but to understand the word of God. And the only way you understand it is to experience it.